This is the Thank You 72 podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. This podcast salutes outstanding Badgers from every one of Wisconsin's 72 counties. It's also our way of saying thank you to the people of this state for sending their best and brightest to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Our guest, Juneau County native, UW grad, and former Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson. Here's your host, Todd Pritchard. Tommy Thompson is about as Wisconsin as you get. Born in Elroy on November 19, 1941, Thompson earned his bachelor and law degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1963 and 1966, respectively. Fresh out of law school, he won a seat in the Wisconsin State Assembly in 1966 when the incumbent underestimated the young Thompson and went on an Alaskan cruise in the middle of the campaign. That was the last time anyone underestimated Tommy Thompson. He became the longest-serving governor in Wisconsin history and later joined the George W. Bush administration as the U.S. Secretary for Health and Human Services. Thompson is best known for his welfare reforms. He reduced Wisconsin's welfare rolls by almost 90%, cutting welfare spending but increasing investment in child care and health care, especially for low-income working families. In 1990, Thompson pushed for the creation of the country's first parental school choice program, which provided Milwaukee families with a voucher to send children to the private or public school of their choice. He also created BadgerCare, designed to provide health care coverage for those families whose employers don't provide health insurance but make too much money to qualify for Medicaid. My Wisconsin Alumni Association colleague, Mike Fahey, and I had a great talk with Governor Thompson and co-author of his new autobiography, Doug Moe. Tommy, Doug, thank you for joining us, uh, and congratulations on the book, Tommy, My Journey of a Lifetime. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how this book came about? Let's let Doug Moe, the, uh, the, really the individual that really made it possible. Um, a couple of friends of, of Governor Thompson, mutual friends um, of Governor Thompson's, uh, reached out to me and asked if I would be interested. Um, he was interested in... in having a book. And as a longtime journalist in Wisconsin, storyteller, um, there are, I can't think of a better story in the last 50 years, really, than, than uh, my co-author's uh, journey of a lifetime, as we called it in the book. So, of course, I said, I said yes pretty quickly. We got together, talked about it, decided an autobiography, um, a book in Governor Thompson's voice, him telling his own story would be the best way to go. And uh, it only took us seven years. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just add to that, you know, that I wanted, wanted a, a book, uh, you know, not so much about me, but about all the accomplishments uh, that we have made in Wisconsin under my administration. It was, so, it was certainly not all me. I had great people. And uh, when Pat Hackett, uh, who uh, did my scheduling in the governor's office, said, you know, I know Doug Moe. And I said, well, that's good. <laughs> Why are you tell me? Well, he might uh, be able to write your book. And I said, well, I would love it. And he says, do you, would you mind meeting him? I said, no, I think I know him, but I would love to meet him and talk to him. And uh, we, uh, we uh, struck up, uh, I think, a wonderful friendship. And uh, I couldn't be happier. Uh, and as I told uh, uh, our interview with Neil Heinem on Channel 3 a few weeks or months ago now, I said, uh, Doug is able to put lipstick on an 800-pound hog and make it look good. <laughs> and I, I, I really mean that. He's a, he's a gifted writer and just, just, to me, a wonderful human being, a great person. And he has written many books, and I'm just 
very pleased to have participated with him and, and was able to tell the story, and he did it so, so well. It just, uh, I think it turned out much better than I thought. It's a great book, and and obviously, Governor, you are you have you're so beloved in Wisconsin, and you are all about Wisconsin. But a very special place in your heart is Elroy. Tell us, tell us why that's so special to you. Well, you know, you grow up there, and you're you know that's your formative years. And uh, I had a my mother who was uh, Irish and a school teacher, and uh, my German father who was uh, a score uh, a grocery keeper and uh, also a farmer and uh, he was gruff and direct and he his his idea of, of life was everybody had to work and my mother was much more pleasant and nice and so I got uh, I think I got the best genes out of, out of both of them you know I I love to I love people and from my father I am absolutely a workaholic and putting the two together uh, makes you a good career politician and uh, a retail you know my father taught me how to sell in the grocery store, and my mother taught me how to be nice. And so uh, selling and being nice was part of being successful and running for election. And that's where I started. And then, of course, uh, going to school there and high school, and, and Elroy was small enough, so even somebody like myself that didn't have any talents could play baseball, football, and basketball and make the team. Because if I didn't, the girl next door had to play. So I, I, I was uh, able to have a great life, and uh, the people in Elroy were, I think, were fantastic individuals. And I still have my farm there, and I go back every weekend to Elroy to the farm, and just love the people, love the area, and I, and I love Elroy. So it's very near and dear to me. And I think, I think most people that grew up in a small community, well, anyway, where they grew up, it's, it's always something special to go back home. So let's talk about that in your early careers in politics. So you were a pretty young man when you first ran for state assembly, um, and you upset an incumbent, and you quickly got a spot on Joint Finance Committee. So tell us a little bit about those early years of politics and how you maneuvered some of that positioning. Well, it was it was interesting. You know, I I decided to run because I was working in the state capitol, and uh, I went up to the state capitol and was wanted to be interviewed by uh, the individual that I subsequently ran against, and he, he wouldn't even interview me because he thought I might run against him. And so he wouldn't even have, he didn't even open up the door, to, you know, to interview me for the job. At that time, there was some money available to hire some students to do some clerkships and some research. And I heard, got wind of it, and so I went up there and applied. But he wouldn't have anything to do with me. But the state senator, who was homesick and subsequently died, who never got a chance uh, to meet me, but he heard about me from my father, uh, who was on the county board in Juneau County, and he was the senator for Juneau County, Richland County at that time, and uh, uh, he hired me. And so I, I worked in the state capitol for my three years that I was in law school, and I thought, you know, I could do this. I'm smart enough to do this. And, uh, and I saw the, what was going on in the state capitol, and I felt I could add something to it, so I decided to run. And I went back home and and borrowed two hundred dollars, bought a car, bought borrowed five hundred dollars, bought a two hundred dollar car, and my father gave me ten dollars a day, five dollars for gas, and the rest of the money to eat, or whatever. And I used the money to campaign on, and that's how um, it, came, it was probably one of the most inexpensive campaigns ever in the history of the state of Wisconsin. Uh, 
the primary was one with less than five hundred dollars, and I think I think we probably spent I think we spent one hundred and twenty five dollars on signs, and that was that was the only expense we had for the campaign. But it was shoe leather, knocking on every door and going around and meeting the people, and I I was just very fortunate to get elected. And then uh, when I got elected, nobody thought I had a chance. So at that time, the Republicans took over, and they wanted. Uh, there were four candidates, uh, Harold Freilich, uh, Kurt McKay, Paul Alfonsi, and um, uh, I can't remember, Harold Clements uh, were running for speaker. And the only one that came to see me was Harold Freilich. And I talked to Harold, I still remember, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he came in and sat down, and I sat next to him, and he says, I want to be speaker, and I'd like to have you vote for me. And I said, well, I'd like to be on Joint Finance Committee. He says, absolutely not. Nobody gets on Joint Finance Committee. He says, can I count on your vote? And I said, when you put me on joint finance, you can count on my vote. Because I had been there and I saw that if you were going to really make an impact as a freshman, and I wanted to make an impact, you had to be on the most powerful committee in the legislature, and that was joint finance. So Harold Freilich left, and about a week later, he called back and he said, have you uh, considered uh, uh, have you considered uh, supporting me for speaker? And I says, have you considered me on joint finances? Yes, and you're not going to get it. I said, okay, then I'm not uh, going to support you. And about three days later, he said, well, I'm considering you on joint finance. Can I, well, I said, when you make up your mind to put me on finance, then we'll talk. And so two days later, he calls back and says, you know, you can, I think I'm going to put you on finance. And I said, well, then I think I'm going to support you. And when you find out for sure, then I'll, I'll be able to make up my mind. And he called back and said, I'm going to put you on joint finance. I said, I'm going to support you. And I was the 13th individual to support him. By this time, two of the other candidates dropped out, and uh, he was running against Harold Clemens, and he won by one vote. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he put me on finance. And so that's how the story began. I've got to interject just quickly and say that 25 years later, President Bill Clinton called then Governor Thompson and said, I want you on Amtrak. And uh, Governor Thompson said, you got to make me chairman of the Amtrak board, right? I mean, it's sort of the same, uh, the same thing. And, and Clinton, what did he say? He said, I can't do it. He said, I can't do it. And this was on a, on a Thursday. He wanted to put Mike Dukakis and... And he, he could not, it was, the, the Senate was controlled by Republicans, so he couldn't get Mike Dukakis as chairman. And Mike Dukakis wanted to be on, on Amtrak so badly that I'm sure that Bill Clinton talked to Mike <laughs> Dukakis over the weekend that, because they didn't, couldn't, Mike could not get confirmed without me. And so they needed to put a Republican on with a Democrat to get him confirmed. And so Mike Dukakis stole the president. He says, oh, that's fine. Let Tommy be chairman. I'll be vice chairman. <laughs> and so the president of the United States <laughs> called me back after being hustled by, uh, by this governor from Wisconsin and made me chairman of Amtrak. And Mike Dukakis became the vice chairman. And, up and until you guys that, became friends. We became friends. And up yeah. until that time, we, did, we really didn't like each other, Mike Dukakis and myself. But Working on that, and we're uh, Mike and myself were the ones who were instrumental in getting the solo, the high speed train from New York to uh, to Washington. We uh, we did that together, and that was quite a quite an accomplishment back then. And it was the board, it was uh, Dukakis and Thompson that took the the leadership, the chairman, and the vice chairman, and we got it done. And now Acela's really doing well. I don't know if you've ever ridden on it, but it's uh, that was uh, really Mike Dukakis and Tommy Thompson's initiative. So it worked out. 
So let's go back to your, your time as governor. What, what are you most proud of? There's, there's mm-hmm. so many things that I'm proud of. One, I'm very proud of the young people I brought in that have distinguished themselves all over. Several are at the University of Wisconsin. Several of them are in business themselves. Several of them are out in Washington, D.C., and all all of the young people I brought in really have been successful, and that's nice because I gave a lot of young people a chance, and uh, and they uh, a lot of people were surprised that I would uh, hire so many young people to be in the governor's office. And the reason I did is I wanted young people that weren't married, not because I think it's married. I just wanted some people that didn't have any outside obligations and could spend all their time. I'm very <laughs> I'm very happy about the fact that we rebuilt Wisconsin. Uh, we rebuilt, you know, the University of Wisconsin. A lot of the new buildings out there were during the start, were started or completed when I was governor. The highway system, you know, and all the and the and the uh, four four lane highways across the state, east and west and north and south, were really under my administration, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of starting welfare reform that became a national program. I'm happy the fact that, you know, we were able to attract a lot of businesses and drop their unemployment below 3% and create over 250,000 jobs. Never been done before or since. And uh, maybe with Foxconn they may be able to do it, but it hasn't been done yet. And then, of course, uh, to be able to uh, develop uh, programs like uh, Badger Care and still the best health care proposal in the country. And it was started under my my leadership. So I've got so many things that I can be proud of, but I really, I really like the fact, you know, that you know, we won the Rose Bowl too. Of course, we hadn't <laughs> done that and won the Super Bowl. Uh, to, you know, I, I, I didn't play, but it, I certainly was one of the loudest cheers uh, on the, on the, in the ground. But you know, it, it was a wonderful time, and I did it with Democrats because most of the Democrats, it was usually. Uh, with support from the Democrats in the legislature, and nobody thought that that was possible. But it was, I was able to show, under my leadership, bipartisanship does work. And uh, I still, to this day, I had lunch today with Tim Cullen and Tony Earle. And uh, even though they were on opposite sides of, of me politically, uh, we're still friends today and, and still see each other. And I, and I think that's lacking in modern-day politics. And I, I'm a big believer in reaching across the aisle and developing bipartisanship and solutions. Doug, let me ask you, what, give me, from your perspective, what do you think the major accomplishments of, of the Thompson administration? Oh, I, I, I think the governor hit him pretty well, Todd. I, I, would, I would say when people found out I was doing this book with Governor Thompson, friends of mine, Democrats, Republicans, it didn't matter, smiled and recalled a time when they didn't always agree with him, but I think that everyone knew that he had the state's best interest at heart. He loved the state. and He wasn't mean-spirited. He was always positive. Um, so I could tick off maybe a few, uh, you know, Taliesin. He, he basically rescued, you know. Um, there, there's any number of ones like that. But I, I go more almost to the, just the tone that was set during that time. And that's not to say there weren't fierce battles because there were. But it was different, and 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 no one doubted, uh, as I say, uh, I don't believe uh, his sincere um, love for the state and its people. 
You're listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. The Wisconsin Alumni Association is honoring amazing Badgers from Wisconsin's 72 counties and thanking the people of the state for sending their best and brightest to UW-Madison. For more amazing alumni stories, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org. Now back to our interview with Juneau County native and former Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson, along with author Doug Moe, chatting with Todd Pritchard and Mike Fahey from the Wisconsin Alumni Association. So let's talk a little bit more about the University of Wisconsin. You, sure. bo- you Doug and Tommy, both proud alums, um, and you have not been shy also about your, your great love for the university and what you did to help support the university. So maybe talk a little bit more about what you did, why you did that, what motivated you. you got to realize that my high school graduating class was 55, and then coming to the University of Wisconsin, having no minorities, so to speak, in my, in my high school, and coming away... Uh, I always tell the story. I came down. We didn't have enough money for a suitcase, so I had a, a Thompson grocery bag with my shirts and underwear, and uh, and 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 see this huge campus. I can't remember how many thousands of freshmen, of students there were at that time. But but being thrown into that, and then uh, knowing that you could survive and receive a tremendous education. And that education, you know, is with you your whole life. And to have the opportunity to go from a small school like I did and attend the University of Wisconsin for four years undergraduate and three years in law school and know that you could afford to to go there, and I had to work my way through, but know that I was able to do it, it was just a, a tremendous thing for me. And then and then to see all the wonderful things that come out of this university and the proud alums and uh, and they see the happiness and the fun uh, by being associated with the Wisconsin, it's really quite a thrill. And have somebody like myself who never thought that I would amount to much and be able to uh, graduate from the University of Wisconsin with two degrees and then go on and get elected to the legislature and then be elected governor of this wonderful state has just been Amazing. I don't think I would have been able to do it without going to the University of Wisconsin. I think the University of Wisconsin helped form the character and the leadership abilities and, and the opportunity to speak and, uh, and talk uh, on several subjects and be able to master them, whether it be uh, the fact that you were able to read the law and, and have to uh, be able to put it together and apply it. Uh, you know, served me very well in the legislature as well as governor. So I, I, I look back and find that the university time of being a student and and working at the varsity bar and at the and at the at the capital uh, were great times and great experiences. And those lifetime experiences have, are still with me, and I'll never forget the the role that the University of Wisconsin played in it. But and then you look back and see that you know how. This university can mold the minds of so many young people and turn them from a country bumpkin like myself out of Elroy into a, a leader that's state and then national. And it's amazing. And they've done that time and time again. And all of us, you know, are associated with the university. And we know how what a great place this is. And I love it dearly. And, and to meet people like Doug Moe and, and you, Todd, and Mike are, are just amazing. Every time you're... You get connected with somebody from the University of Wisconsin, you know, and talk to them. Everybody's proud to 
to it with their association. Nobody is bashful or embarrassed by saying, I went to school at the University of Wisconsin. Everybody is pretty proud of that. And when they start singing varsity, you see the tears in the eyes and the smile on the face and see Bucky Badger and, and know that that university helped you a tremendous lot. You know, your, your knowledge of the University of Wisconsin and, and the stem cell research that, that came out of here oh yeah, was, was instrumental. I, that, I think that is a great story in your book is, is how that all played out when um, it really played a major role in your time in the Bush administration as Health and Human Service Secretary. Can, can you talk about, tell that story a little bit about how that unfolded? Well, you know, it was not an easy time. Uh, to be in favor of embryonic stem cells, uh, being a, a governor, being a Republican governor, and being a Catholic Republican governor, being an Irish Catholic Republican governor, you know, it, all all of these things were were working against me as far as embryonic stem cells. And uh, I had to stand up against a, a lot of a lot of opposition, but I also saw the tremendous opportunities. And I can remember giving speeches with with children with juvenile diabetes and talking to the parents how they go to bed at night and, and seeing their son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter and know that that child has got to have the right amount of insulin and they got to wake up sometime during the night or several times during the night and prick the finger of that child to see if their their blood glucose is correct. There's in the uh, parameters of being safe for that child. And knowing that, and knowing that embryonic stem cells might be able to come up with a, a cure for juvenile diabetes. And, and, I, and I just always go back to that because I could see these little faces of these little kids. You know, and I, I spoke at their national organization and their, several of their state organizations, and they all says, you know, all dependent upon the opportunity for coming up with embryonic stem cell cures for themselves. And that Parkinson's, you know, all of us know somebody with Parkinson's or some kind of mental problems, you know, or, or any kind of heart problems or anything like this. You know, the opportunities for cures for so many diseases and so many maladies with embryonic stem cells is, is just boundless. And to think that we had a chance to do something here at the Wisconsin, I could not let politics interfere or deter me from pushing it. So I, I was out very, way out in front, and uh, I got beat up pretty badly, both sides, because, uh, you know, the, uh, several members of my party wanted me to go farther. Several members of the Democratic Party certainly wanted me to go farther. And I wanted, I wanted to go it in a steady path so that we could get it accomplished. And I had to go and I debated Carl Rove in front of President George W. Bush. I'll still remember it over the lunchroom and uh, still remember that uh, uh, I ordered a hamburger and George Bush ordered a peanut butter and a jelly sandwich and had it there and Carl Rove. And, and I remember lose, trying, I thought I was losing the debate because Carl Rove kept saying the, the base, the conservative base is not going to, appreciate uh, us coming out with uh, any kind of a program that's going to allow the use of embryonic stem cells or, the, or what they indicated was killing the, the embryo. 
or destroying the embryo to get to the embryonic stem cells. And I said, Mr. President, I'll still remember my closing argument. Mr. President, you had a sister that died very young. I think it was Parkinson's. I'm not exactly sure about that, but I think it was Parkinson's disease or some form of cancer. And uh, I said, if that, if your sister had a chance to live because of embryonic stem cells, wouldn't you do that? And I said, no matter how much you spend on, on an NIH and or how much you spend on cancer research, if the people find out that you stopped you know, the development of embryonic stem cells, you're going to be going down as somebody that is anti-science and anti-good health care. And I could just see, you know, when I said that, I could see his, you know, you can tell somebody, you, you can tell somebody is interested in how somebody's responded, and he did. And I knew I had him then. And he came out, and he went halfway. He didn't go as far as I had requested, but he allowed the embryonic stem cell research to go on. And I compliment him for that. And today, it's uh, they're able to develop embryonic stem cells and stem cells uh, of all levels without killing the embryo. And everybody is happy now with the, with the, you know, the science of embryonic stem cells. But the problem is, the cures have not come as fast as everybody thought they would. And and I knew that. But it's when you go through life. And I, I'm a strong believer that if you've got a positive mind and believe something's going to happen for the good, and embryonic stem cells is part of that. And I, I just felt in my mind, even though I knew, you know, cures don't come that quickly, but it was the right thing, and we're going in the right direction. Well, as we sit here almost 20 years to the day that Jamie Thompson first made those discoveries, right. it's your that work was really impressive and made a really big difference for the university. and. Well, and, and Mike, I introduced uh, Jamie Thompson at a, one of my state of the state speeches up the Capitol, and I got several people applauded me for doing it, but several of the legislators really criticized me, and a lot of individual organizations that were anti anti destroying the embryo came in and was really upset with me. So it was it was not easy, but it was the right. Right call then, and it certainly is the right call today. Good. So, so the other good story in the book is. Well, I hope there's a lot of good. Stories. A lot of good. Well, well, other than not getting your son to tie a shoe on the night of you winning, which was my favorite, having an eleven-year-old. Um, the story of nine eleven um, and what happened there, and, and some risks you took um, and to push back is a great story. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that day and that experience. It was, it was a day like. No other day in the history of our country. And uh, I, was, I was trying to bring together a group of scientists. And they had already started flying in. And we were meeting the next day. And so we're going to meet at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I had a breakfast meeting. And I had to give a speech. And I was coming into uh, my office and uh, in the car. And uh, I got this call saying uh, there's just been a, <clears throat> a plane that's flown into uh, one of the Twin Towers. And you better get to the, get up to your office fast because we, we may have uh, a lot of people injured. And so I went there, went into my office, and about 15 minutes later, 16 minutes to be exact, uh, 846, the uh, second plane hit. And then you knew. And then everybody was just, you know, really beside themselves what to do. And, uh, and then a short time later, the, the Pentagon 
uh, got hit, and then uh, about 40 minutes later, Shanksville, Pennsylvania got the plane went into the ground where the people had overtaken uh, the <clears throat> terrorists. And I knew because the president was in Florida and the vice president was, they have a place in the White House where it's very secured and only with top security you can get down there. And that's where Vice President Cheney was. And I knew I had to act because I knew there was a lot of people that were killed or dying and injured in New York and at the Pentagon. And so I took it upon myself uh, to call in my lawyers at 9.30 in the morning and say by 10 o'clock I want to declare a a uh, <clears throat> health emergency for the United States. And I, I'm not sure if I had the, had the uh, authority to do so. I don't, I'm not sure if it's ever been done before. And, but I acted and uh, the lawyers didn't know. And I said, we just figure, figure it out. And I said, I want to declare a national health emergency by 10 o'clock. And I did, and I was able by doing that to use that power to get a big plane to carry 50 tons of medical supplies. We had, at that time, we had eight depots of medical supplies and equipment across America, which are all top secret. And I, while I was there, I was able to increase that to 12. And now there are 12, which makes it easier to get to a city. But we took 50 tons of medical supplies and equipment up to up to New York and by five o'clock that afternoon. And then uh, later on that evening, we got 100,000 masks and 200,000 uh, gloves, latex gloves up there. And uh, I, of course, wanted wanted to go. And, and uh, so the following day, uh, we made arrangements for me to go up on Amtrak. And I spent uh, a day up there talking to the mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani and Governor Pataki and the chief of police and uh, head of the fire department. And then I went down there. And I'll, ne I'll never forget this. It's almost surreal. It was a blue day going up there. Sunshine was on the start and the sun was out and it was very calm. Great, great day in September. And you went down closer to the Twin Towers and you couldn't see all this debris was off in the air and everybody was wearing masks and all the stop and go lights were blown out and people were standing and were, were parked in line you know and and nobody ever blew their horn everybody slowly let everybody else pass and nobody you know got mad nobody got ugly in New York nobody blew their horn and it was just people that were just so concerned and so considerate and I'll never forget that. So what about uh, the story of, of you being told to go into <laughs> confinement oh, and maybe not wanting to do that? I That's didn't. <laughs> I, knew I, I knew I had so much to do, and uh, Cheney ordered all secretaries except for uh, Colin Powell and uh, Donald Rumsfeld to go out to what is called Camp Weather. It's a Mount Weather. Mount yeah. Weather. Yeah. Mount Weather. It's in West Virginia, and it's a hundred. It's a city, hundred and seventy-five feet down in the mountain, and uh, there's a whole city down there. And they wanted all the secretaries down. It was in order to preserve the succession of government, the continuity of government, is what it's called. And if if they didn't know where the terrorists were coming from. They didn't know if they had targeted cabinet officers and, and the president and vice president and what happens if the president 
got blown up in the plane and the vice president got taken out. Who's going to take over? So they had, they have built, and it's still there at Camp Weather, or Mount Weather, uh, this place where it's it's the seat of government. They got places for the Congress to, to come. They got all the departments are set up there, and they actually have working desks and computers and everything out there. And they ordered all of us uh, to go out there, and of course I refused. <laughs> And because I, I have things to do, and I didn't want to go. That was the last place I wanted to do. So finally it got so serious that uh, they were going to come and arrest me. And they were outside when my security and my chief of staff, Bob Wood, came in and says, it's not going to look good for you being taken out of the Humphrey building in hand. They probably think you were part of the terrorists. And so they convinced me I had to go. But I called a guy over who was <clears throat> my closest security guy, a good friend, Mike Lanetto. And I said, Mike, you get up, find out where it is. He said, I know where it's at. He says, take that car and go as fast as you can because we were going on helicopters and don't, don't obey any traffic. Things. You get out there and get in the back and I'm going to walk in the front door and walk out the back and you bring me back. And so I was shocked. And so... When they checked us in, and they gave us each a billet, you know, a room. They gave you your your washcloths, your towels, and your bedding, and a, and a pillow. And they assigned billets because they got, that's how big it is down there. It's 175. is a complete city. Got a whole hotel down there. And so they assigned us each rooms, all the cabinet secretaries. The cabinet secretaries were mad at me because they were sitting in the in the helicopters waiting, waiting for, for you to show up. <laughs> and I was the last one. And so then they took off. I remember we took off at quarter to one, and we got there at 2.30. And I checked in and signed my name, and and they signed me my room. And, and so I went in the room, and I asked I asked one of the uh, <clears throat> guards there, where was the back door? Because I said, I, I'm, it's, just, it's almost a mile away. And I said, I don't care. Just tell me where it is back there. So I, I could see where I was supposed to go. And, uh, and there's a huge hole network of of highways down there and so i went to my room and threw in through my my <clears throat> bedding and my wash <laughs> uh, towel and and so on on my bed and i turned over closed the door and walked out and closed the door and walked down to the end and walked out and like there were some people there that was security people there and they said where are you going i said I was, you know, I'm a little claustrophobic, and uh, I said, it's, it's, I, I need some air. He said, okay, so I walked out, walked right by him, and right there was my, Mike Lanetta was my squad. <laughs> and he was, he was there, Johnny Spotton, and he was turning around, ready to go, and I jumped in the back seat, and I said, go, and I says, don't stop. If anybody's trying to get, just go. <laughs> and nobody tried to stop us, and we went, and I was back, I was back in my office by quarter to four. Much to the surprise of everybody, and uh, and then uh, a lot of the individuals wanted to go home, and rightly so, they were afraid, and so I had a sort of an assembly, and I called them all together, and I said, "I'm going to be here tomorrow. You don't have to come, but we got a lot of work, a lot of people depend upon us, and I hope you come." So I shook hands with everybody that left that day and thanked them for staying because they didn't have to stay; they had they had the opportunity to leave in the afternoon after I left. And I got there at 5 o'clock in the morning, went home at midnight, got up and was there 
at five o'clock and st stood outside and, and shook hands with everybody that came to work the next day and thanked him. And so that's was a it was a, a fantastic uh, experience, but so absolutely depressing and and sorrowful and going up and seeing the people that were injured and sitting in the hospital talking to them about you know what they went through on 9-11 and then some of the people I had met with in the hospitals subsequently died and then going over to the morgue where where relatives and husbands and wives were bringing things in you know for the individual at the morgue to identify the pieces of the bodies it was just so depressing well governor you know it's such an honor for you for us to have you here we really appreciate you and doug coming here to be on on the podcast yeah i, I guess one final question yes, doug. would be you love wisconsin yes i do why it's the greatest state in america you know you, you look around you anything you want to look at wisconsin is the leader no agriculture, you, know, you name so many things in agriculture. Manufacturing. Uh, it's one of the best states manufacturing. Technology, this University of Wisconsin, technologically, and now with Foxconn, you know, we're, you know, we're from lakes. I used to tell people, you know, Minnesota brags about 10,000 lakes. We have 15,000. We have fish in ours. <laughs> you know the tourism the beauty the people it's the people you know uh, that are so darn nice so productive and so caring and uh, I think it's probably you know it goes back to some of the Germanic heritages you know we're, we're the most Germanic state in America and and that great restaurants great people great hospitality when he dedicated the book to the uh the people of Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, and just run really quick one. Uh, when, after 9-11, you established a command center out at, uh, <laughs> at HHS yeah. in the Humphrey Building, and I, I would love to know the reaction of the uh, new Obama folks when they came in in 2008, because it's state-of-the-art and it's fabulous. Everybody loved it. But there's a big map there. And it's everything is is normal size on the map, except there's one thing in uh, that's hugely uh, blown out into huge proportion. And of course, it's somewhere in Wisconsin, and it's Elroy. <laughs> so, <laughs> imagine that. Yeah. It was amazing. The, you know, Ch Cheney came over, Rumsfeld came over because they had heard about it, and they came over to see this thing. It has the whole world around. <laughs> in this huge room so that we could see anything and everything. Uh, and it was an amazing thing, but right in the center, of the, I, I had it labeled center of the universe, <laughs> Elroy. The, 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 the centers in the emergency center, they've named it after me, is still there in the Humphrey building, but Elroy's gone. Oh, no. <laughs> Somebody took down Elroy, but all the time I was there, it was, Elroy was the center of the universe. Well, Elroy will always be the center of your universe, yeah. and we really, really appreciate you spending the time and talking to us on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It was wonderful. Thank really, you. You guys are great. Thank you both. Thank yeah. you. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. For more interviews with amazing UW alumni, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org.